This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. If you don't have a Bible, we have some pew Bibles on the side, these racks. We'd love for you to grab one of those. You'll find Luke chapter 5 around page 808 or 880. I didn't write it down this time, but it's close there. I'd love for you to take that home if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you at home. Let's pray together as we look to God's Word. Lord, thank you for today and the blessing of assembling with your people to worship you, to hear your word read and sung, prayed. And Lord, now we ask for your blessing over it as it is preached. Would you give us understanding from above? Understanding about who we are or who we have been and who you are. Lord, we pray that Christ would be glorified in our time. And Lord, we ask that you would call sinners to repentance. We ask that you would call them out of darkness and lostness into newness of life, that they would repent unto life and have saving faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we be those that can never get over our own conversion who want to see all those that we know and love come to know the Savior that we know and love. Lord, may that be contagious in this congregation. We pray you would bless us and stir our affections for Christ this morning over your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus loves the outcast. In her song, The Magnificat, Mary outlined the promise, if you remember, of a great reversal that would be kind of a characteristic of Jesus' ministry that we'd see often in Luke's gospel. The song began this way in Luke 1, 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We've seen this theme work out, haven't we, in Luke's gospel um, already. We've seen Jesus free a man from demon possession that, that rendered him unclean, and he was completely isolated from society, and he was healed and restored. Jesus healed an unclean leper by reaching out and touching him, and he was restored to, to God and to his community. Jesus has declared forgiveness to a paralytic of his sins and then healed his body as authentication. He, he walked out carrying the bed that he was brought in on. All the while, the religious leaders are standing in shock and in their pride, they're accusing Jesus. Even in the choosing of his disciples. We saw in that first part of Matthew 5, Jesus calling Peter to be a fisher of men and revealing himself to him and Peter being confronted with his own sin and the, the holiness of Jesus and asking him to go away after this catch of fish that was brought in. James and John followed suit. It's interesting, though, that we see 
another calling of a disciple this morning. And we're going to notice, I think, in this pattern that Jesus has of calling those that are going to be closest to him, it's a little different from the way that we would go about probably finding associates in life. He's not looking for the most qualified or most educated, well-spoken, professional resume as a disciple. Clearly, Jesus goes for the other end of the spectrum, the outcast, the nobody, a tax collector, maybe the most despised of all people in all of Israel. And this man not only comes to Jesus, he brings with him all of his friends. And the Pharisees are going to have a, a fit. But Jesus means to show the strength of his arm and to do so by scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty, and calling the humble to himself. This traitor, thief, turncoat, loser, we might say, leaves everything to follow Jesus. And friend, it exposes a self-righteousness that is not just present in the Pharisees. If we're honest with ourselves, it's lingering in our own hearts often as well. But the good news is that Jesus shows himself to be the great physician, come to heal the spiritually sick, at least those that know that they're sick. But for those who have no need of Jesus, there is no draw. Only accusation and anger. Friend, just listen to one of the most important statements that Jesus makes about his mission on earth in verse 32 of chapter 5. I have not come to save the righteous, but sinners. To call sinners to repentance. So if you take Jesus' words with a tinge of irony, which I think we should, we would understand that he's not saying some of us are indeed righteous without the need of a great physician. He's speaking to those that think that they are righteous and think that they are in good standing with God by the way that they live, the deeds that they performed, the people that they hang out with. The Pharisees have no desire to follow Jesus because they think they are well without him. Luke is telling us that we all need Jesus. And those that have Him and know Him and are accepted by Him, love Him and then are compelled to bring others to Him. That's what we see in the account of the calling of Levi this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Here's the main point of the passage. Jesus is the great physician who calls six sinners to come to be saved. He's the great physician who calls sick sinners to come to be saved. And we are all sick with sin. Just knowing that, understanding that, believing that is a gift from God in and of itself. And in Levi, we see a transformation of a sinner and we see the religious establishment object because they have a jaded view of who Jesus is and a self-righteous view of themselves. And so if you're taking notes, we'll walk through this passage, this account this way. First, we'll see the call. Number one, the call of Levi. We'll see that in verse 27 of chapter 5. Then number two, the change in Levi. The change in Levi. We'll see that in verses 28 and 29. And finally, the controversy over Levi. Verses 30 to 32. So call, change, controversy. All C's just for your enjoyment. May the Lord teach us through his word by the power of his spirit. First, the call. Jesus 
has always been and will always be a polarizing figure. Uh, even today, take a normal, ordinary conversation that you're having with a coworker, a family member who doesn't know the Lord, and you bring up Jesus' name and just observe how interesting their cup of coffee suddenly becomes or that their phone suddenly becomes. He's a polarizing figure. And we've seen that, haven't we, already in Luke's gospel? Kind of a major key that we've seen played so far has been one of acceptance. People are flocking to Jesus. Many are leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. His own disciples are coming. But there's also a minor key in the background that we hear of rejection and suspicion. So don't forget what happened when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth to to preach in the synagogue. He was nearly thrown off a cliff. And then last week we saw the beginning of this Pharisee investigation of Jesus' ministry and evaluation. That minor, it's still a minor key at this point, but the volume is certainly being turned up quickly. Especially when we see Jesus associating with people that the religious leaders deem as unclean, like tax collectors. So look with me at verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, follow me. Uh, We get the impression that right after the healing of the paralytic, see that phrase after this, right after the healing of the paralytic, Jesus kind of walks out, walks by this tax booth with a tax collector sitting there and calls him. Maybe taxes are on your mind right now. It's kind of tax season, isn't it? Uh, This is close to tax day, I think. When you're taking the time to gather up your receipts and, and gather up those things to get your taxes in order, Maybe you're expecting to get a refund and you turn out writing a check. How's your attitude been? Is it eager and joyful, gushing with excitement? That's sort of our normal, maybe, maybe not. I'm just assuming maybe not. Our normal posture toward kind of tax season and paying taxes is that way. Much different in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, tax collectors are synonymous with sinners. They're known to be sinners. They had a reputation, not only, of course, of collecting taxes, but cheating people on their taxes. Since the Roman Empire kind of privatizes the taxation system, they're free. These tax collectors are free to charge as much as they want, to pad their own wallets, and they did. And of course, they're also seen as the ultimate sellout, working for the empire that is oppressing your friends and neighbors and family. So because of their regular dealings with Gentiles, They're thievery. They're considered by the Jews to be the worst of the worst and ritually unclean, on par with a leper. That's the kind of person that we would kind of put in the category of, okay, enemy of God. The kind of person that we would expect the Messiah to come and punish, destroy, not call, not save, and surely not invite into his inner circle of followers. I wonder who comes to your mind as you might think of a modern-day Levi, a modern-day tax collector, someone actively working against the purposes of God in the world today, maybe profiting from evil, killing, taking advantage of the weak of the world for their own profit. And imagine that Jesus showed up one day. And instead of destroying them, he, He calls them to Himself. 
How would you respond? How do you think the disciples responded when they they see this filthy, thieving, selfish sinner be invited to join their group? I think part of Luke's genius in telling the story this way is that it helps us to naturally see Levi as a bad guy off the bat, right? One author describes him as sinfully rich, socially ostracized. But we don't naturally see ourselves that way, sitting at that same tax booth. But friends, we know the Bible teaches that at one point, this is where we all began our walk with Jesus, if we're walking with Jesus as a Levi. This is our story. We may not have been tax collectors, but the Bible teaches us that we were right there with him in the booth of our own sin, trying to get as much as we possibly could from the world, not caring about God or his people. We were the most important thing. Robbing God of his glory and our create as our creator and king who made us to worship him and know him and love him and cherish him. And we have turned away. Friends, we're all born into this world as cosmic traitors, tax collectors of the worst kind. And we would still be there in that tax booth if it weren't for Jesus. Interrupting our lives and calling us out of death into life. Don't you see that picture here of God's gracious election, his choice of a sinner to be saved? Before Levi ever decides to follow Jesus, Jesus decides to make him one of his followers. Jesus is going to remind the disciples later in John's gospel, he records, you do not choose me. Let me tell you how this went down, guys. You do not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Levi is saved by God's grace. And that's true of every single believer in this room. Paul reminds the Ephesians that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glorious grace. We are saved by God's grace. Jesus interrupts our lives as we run away from him to save us. As Cyril of Alexandria noted, kind of until this point in his life, he was a man greedy for dirty money, filled with an uncontrolled desire for possessions, careless of justice, in his eagerness to have what he did not not have belong to him, and yet he was snatched from the workshop of sin itself and saved when there was no hope for him at the call of Christ, the Savior of us all. Jesus snatched him up. And if you know him, he's snatched you up too. Friend, don't ever give up on that person that you have probably given up on spiritually that you think could never be saved because of their circumstances, their their hardness of heart, their commitment to their own sin. Don't ever give up on the Levi's in your life, those that you know and say they're hopelessly lost. There is no darkness too great, no hole too deep, no sinner too far that cannot be snatched out of the jaws of hell by the grace of Jesus Christ. So beloved, pray that God would continue to add to our number by calling Levi's like you and me, to follow Jesus. Maybe he's, he's calling you today. I have really good news for you. The church is the only fellowship in the world where the requirement for membership is your unworthiness. 
The only place where in order to join, you must be unworthy to be there. Friends, that's all of us. The the name Matthew means gift of God. Scholars debate whether whether Levi here is is Matthew's middle name, some other name that he went by. But I just love that that we kind of know him as Matthew and we see him, of course, in some of the other Gospels as Matthew. And God is just kind of in the business of taking Levi's and turning them into Matthew's. His gracious, electing, powerful hands. Friends, this is the gospel. The power of God and salvation for all who would believe. We pray you would believe and see a kind of change, a kind of transformation like we see in Levi. So Jesus calls Levi to follow him. We see his response to Jesus next. So let's look at that secondly. Number two, the change. The change. And there are really two aspects to Levi's response. Uh, The first one we see there in verse 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Much to the shock and likely dismay of the other disciples. This is a theme, isn't it, that we see of discipleship. Those that follow Jesus leave everything behind. They leave their old lives behind. Peter and James and John left the most miraculous catch that they could ever even have dreamed of. Their nets, their boats. Their vocations, they left it all behind to follow Jesus. But I think Levi's commitment here is even more stark. Because when you leave Rome, there's no, there's no turning back. There's no more favor for the guy who leaves the tax booth full of money, unlocked or whatever he did, and just walks off from it and says, no, I'm done. I'm done. There's no turning back for, for Levi. He's, he's walking away from his job and all of those things but especially from his old life. And as he goes, it's like he takes a match and just sets everything on fire to say there's nothing for me back there and I'm never going back. Beloved, do you ever nurture the idea that maybe you wouldn't speak to anyone about, but just a, just a backup plan in life? A backup plan. If this church stuff doesn't work out or this Christianity thing doesn't work out. And I know I could always do something else with my life. Maybe if my, my marriage gets to a place where it's too hard, I know that there's always going to be a, a way out. Friends, I think we can learn from Levi here and go ahead and burn down our backup plans as it relates to Jesus. Jesus says, follow me for life. Friends, this is Repentance making a definitive break from your old life of sin, no matter the cost. Letting go of anything that would stand in the way of you following Jesus. Burning it down. I'm never going back. Repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. Levi rises to follow Jesus for the rest of his life. This word follow is like an active participle. which just It just means there's continuous action. It's a lifelong call. This is what it looks like to answer the call. And friends, I would would say this is a, a picture of an effectual call from Jesus Christ. We hear a general call. Hopefully you hear that every week at UPBC. You hear a general statement of the of the gospel and a call, an invitation to repent of your sins and believe 
in Jesus Christ. But this call from Jesus actually affects a response from Levi. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.30, God, those that God predestined, he also called. Listen to the Westminster Shorter Catechism as they define what effectual calling is. It's the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. He comes to Jesus. And he responds by repenting and believing and following Jesus. But he also responds another way. So that's one way that we see. But look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So friends, you have to ask this question. What happens when somebody realizes that they're truly, truly saved from the consequences of their sin? What happens when they understand and embrace the grace of God in Jesus Christ? That they are accepted by the Father because of the works of another. They worship, don't we? We respond in worship and praise of the living God. Disciples are worshipers. We seek fellowship with Jesus and honor Jesus with our lives. Because he's worthy. He's worthy of all that we have, all that we are. Whereas before, our resources, our time, our affections, our ambitions were all shaped around what we could get, what was for ourselves. Now they're shaped around Jesus. So Levi naturally throws a party. He throws a party for Jesus. A great feast to honor him. And Levi likely has a lot of money. He's very wealthy. So this is probably a swanky party, one that you would want to be at. He uses his money for the glory of God. Friends, what a great example for us. But not only is he worshiping, not only is he responding with his life and his resources, he also begins to witness. He invites all his friends to meet Jesus at his home. A large company and all his friends, guess what? They're sinners. They're all tax collectors. That's the only friends he has. That's the only people he knows. So just like Peter, now Levi is a fisher of men. Instead of collecting taxes, he's now collecting sinners to introduce to Jesus. This is what disciples of Jesus do, beloved. They invite their friends and neighbors to meet Jesus. J.C. Ryle put it this way, a converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. Converted man or woman will not wish to go to heaven alone. So Levi sees calls for celebration and invitation. Celebrating the grace of God in Jesus Christ, inviting others to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He uses his home, he uses his money to bring his friends to Jesus. Praise the Lord. What an example. Beloved, you can do this. You can do this. Invite your lost friends to a Jesus party. Introduce them to Jesus. Maybe it's one friend. Over in your home, invite them over. Maybe just to brag on Jesus. To talk about all that Jesus has done for you. Maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's lunch. Maybe it's something in between classes at at school. Maybe it's a baseball game. 
But you clearly, you, you clearly see the change that's taking place in Levi's life. He's eager now to immediately see others experience the grace he's experienced. You do not need my permission to do this. You don't need the elder's permission to do this, just to open up your home to non-Christians. You don't need an elder to be there. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need curriculum. You have Jesus. They don't. You know Jesus. They don't. You've been forgiven, redeemed, restored, made righteous, granted eternal life. And as far as you know, they are days, hours away from hell. Help them to know Jesus. Teach the gospel. Hospitality can be a powerful way to do this. A powerful way to be like a platform that adorns the gospel in your life. Disciples leave everything. They repent. They believe and follow Jesus. They worship. And I think that worship and fellowship with Jesus then fuels their witness. To spend The more time we spend with Jesus, the more time we reflect on His Word, on His grace in our life, the more that He's loved us so much, the more compelled we are to tell others about Him, to leverage our lives all that we can for those that would, they would know Him as well. Friend, do you feel that impulse in your heart? Do you feel that burning in your, in your bones? I know that some of you do because you've talked to me about it and given me stories even recently about doing some, some different things like ripping off somebody's roof to tell them about Jesus. Nobody's actually done that. But kind of in that universe, in the ballpark, are you worshiping the king like that? In a way that when you walk away and say, I can't hold this in to myself. Are you walking with him faithfully, helping others to do the same? What an amazing change we see in Levi. But every party has a party pooper. The Pharisees show up and in the next section, we're going to see something about this controversial uh, way that they look at what Jesus is doing. So that's number three, the controversy. Actually, I think it's likely that the conversation that we read about here may happen after this Dinner, I'm not sure the Pharisees would be caught dead even near the house, um, certainly not being in it with the other tax collectors, but maybe they circle back later and, and they walk by and understood what was happening and circle back and begin to kind of talk to the, um, you know, the disciples and, and voice their concern. So we read about their concern there in verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know, grumbling does not have a good connotation in the Bible. Uh, the Pharisees are locating themselves with the obstinate, the hard-hearted Israelites in the wilderness. Didn't trust God for his provision for them. Here they are grumbling, not because of the party, but because who was invited and maybe who wasn't invited. Now, the Pharisees are separatists. You need to understand that. And separatists in the worst way. Their view of holiness is, is total separation from sinners. So they would never have shared a meal with these tax collectors because in some sense, table fellowship would be some kind of acceptance of this other individual as a person. And they believe that their righteousness would then be polluted or defiled in the presence of sinners. I think every time we read of the Pharisees and kind of in a situation, I think we can safely say they see themselves as the good guys in the story. They're trying to follow God's law, trying to do things the right way, according to God's word. 
Maybe it's good to put ourselves in, in their shoes. Imagine if Jesus showed up to church uh, this, this evening at our members meeting and just took the mic and started just, just laying into the, to the elders, laying into the deacons, all the, the women's ministry leaders. And then he just walked out and went and, and had dinner with um, some drug addicts and others that we know in, were involved in, in major, major sin across the way. I think we'd be just as scandalized. We'd be wondering, what, what is going on here? So back to the question, why do you eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors? Maybe they don't have enough courage to actually talk to Jesus directly, so they kind of whisper maybe to one of the disciples, hey, what are you guys doing? But notice it's Jesus who answers them. And he kind of turns that view of holiness upside down. Look at verse 31. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Don't you know that Dr. Luke loved this story? Thinking about Jesus as a great physician. It's a very simple illustration. If you're well, you don't go to the doctor. Maybe you've had the experience, someone in your family won't name names, thinks you should maybe go to the doctor when you're well to get a physical and the doctor looks at you and says, hey, everything's good. Why are you here? Right? I think that's a rare occurrence. It is for me. The first question the doctor asks when you come in is, what brings you in? Like, like why are you here? And if you're well or you think you're well, you don't go to the doctor. Jesus is saying, I'm the doctor. And like all other doctors, I only do business with sick people. That's kind of my thing. That's who I've come for. Doctors deal with the sick. Jesus deals with sinners. Those who are sick with sin, full of sin, who know that they've offended a holy God and deserve His wrath for eternity in hell. And so if you're sick with sin, you can go to Jesus. But if you think you're well, you don't really see the importance of Jesus. You don't see the need for Jesus. And of course, he's being ironic here, isn't he? No one is well. No one is righteous. Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He's calling out the self-perspective. Perception of the Pharisees. They think that they're righteous. Friends, that will keep you from Jesus. They don't see that they're sick and that He is the great physician, that Jesus is the cure, that He can heal us from our depraved condition. Friend, that's why Jesus came, to save us from our sin. That's why He lived a life of love and obedience and perfection on this earth, always trusting His Father, fulfilling the law, honoring His Father with all that He did, reflecting His Father in His life. And that's why he willingly laid down that righteous life as a ransom to pay the penalty for our sins. He died as a substitute. He took the wrath that we deserved. A righteous, eternal punishment was laid on him on the cross. He paid our debt and he rose from the grave for our justification that we might be made right with God 
Anyone sick? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded from the fall. He stands ready to save you. Would you come? He calls you to repent and believe on Him. He hasn't called us to come if we don't think we need repentance. He's come for sinners. And I think we see here not only a reflection on the mission of Jesus, but the marching orders for His people. Jesus calls us to follow Him and make disciples. But not through segregation or isolation. So we can't call unbelievers to repentance if we are never around unbelievers. I think this is really good for us to hear, especially if we're struggling right now to engage with non-Christians. Because we wonder, well, how is association with them going to affect me? Or what will others maybe say if I'm associated with this, this group? So I think it's instructive to think about the way Paul speaks about those outside the church and inside the church in 1 Corinthians 5. You don't have to turn there. Just let me read a couple of sections to you. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote my letter to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. That's not what he's saying. Disciples are not called to isolate from the world, to create a Christian bubble so that no sin or sinner could ever get in. He goes on to say, but no, I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, he says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So friends, here's the lesson. Jesus is not teaching that we should welcome unrepentant sinners into the membership of the church. This is not the Lord's Supper here in Luke 5. There is a a difference, a bright line separating insiders and outsiders in the kingdom. Friends, one day there will be a door and it will either be open or closed. One day you will be seen to be either a sheep or a goat. And anytime we we blur that bright line, we end up killing the witness that we're called to give. Even when it's done with the best of intentions. Paul's point is the church needs to be strong. The church needs to be healthy. The church needs to be pure. So that it can then go into the darkness of the world to call sinners to repentance. I know there's many parents in the room and many different parents make many different choices with uh, schooling options. We've done a couple different options, but we've predominantly done homeschooling. And I think there is a little bit of a temptation when you homeschool, a motive that is to do a little bit of this Christian bubble. uh, To keep all the stuff that might contaminate your child away. But friends, we know from just studying the nature of man that that's already a failed mission. The contamination is already there. It's already in the home. Everybody in the house. 
All the, all the bad things come from our hearts, right? Not from outside influences. But if you take the approach, the mindset of, okay, I'm doing this kind of schooling method, discipling my children in this way to give them a consistent gospel message, a Christian worldview, so that they would grow up to be oaks of righteousness that won't be swayed by the cultural winds so that they can go into the world and proclaim Jesus and get criticized for then associating with sinners, calling them to repentance. That's, that's different. So, so there's insiders and there's outsiders. And we see it often in Luke's gospel. That's true even this morning. But the main point is that the insiders are called to go and proclaim the gospel to the outsiders. Outsiders become insiders by repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. Friends, that means every sinner, every kind of sinner is welcome here. Welcome here. We want people to come who don't believe. We want people to come who are who are who disagree majorly maybe with some of the things that we're teaching and, and saying, who are living even in opposed, opposed to, to, to God's ways. We want them to come. We want them to listen to the preaching of the gospel. We want them to get to know you and me. We want them to observe the way that we live, the way that we have dinner in our homes, the way that we lead our families. And when they come, we want to love them, show hospitality to them, and call them to repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't go from an outsider to an insider without accepting the diagnosis of the physician that says you're a sinner and you need to be cleansed. And He will make you clean. You see that tension? That's the tension. Invite, come, and come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The lowest of the low is invited to follow Jesus. And he ends up publishing the first gospel. The gospel that we read, the gospel of Matthew, that, that's amazing to the glory of God. I just love that Jesus doesn't seem to care much about what everybody thinks about his love for the worst of sinners. And I just think that's instructive for us to see as we think about our own kind of fear of man things, as we, as we find ourselves in a world that, that needs the gospel. Should there be guardrails? Absolutely. Should you know your own heart and your own temptations? Absolutely. But we're not called to isolate. We're called to go and bring the gospel. Jesus teaches us to see the world differently. The Pharisees look out and they see bad guys and good guys. They're usually the good guys. The righteous and sinners, they're usually the righteous. Jesus reminds us that there are only sinners and this other subset of sinners that are repenting sinners, forgiven sinners, sinners who have experienced the grace of God, worshiping sinners, witnessing sinners, and we call those saints. Saints of God. Friend, grace is available to all that realize they need it. The well have no need for it. But those that know that they're sick, that's the kind of person that Jesus is calling, the kind of person that will leave it all and follow Him, the kind of person who, who ends up being close to Jesus and who brings others with him. Which kind of person are you?
Listen to uh, a comparison from Luke 18 that I think fits well with our passage. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, would you do a work in us, we pray. Would you give us fresh eyes, Lord? Some of us have been walking with you for decades upon decades upon decades. Some of us have been converted in the last five years, the last two years, months ago. Would you give us clear, fresh eyes to see you for who you are? Lord, we pray that daily we would be struck and amazed at your grace and compelled regularly to love like this, to love like Levi, like someone who has been forgiven so much. Show us, Lord, what we've been forgiven. Show us, Lord, your beauty. We pray that you would draw many to come to know you. Lord, we love you and pray that you would do this for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.